Welcome back to A Game of Two Halves. We're back, Ollie, aren't we? It's been a while. We are, and we have a special guest today in the studio. Ben Knowles, hello. Hello, thanks for having me on, boys. No worries, mate. We've got so much to talk about today. As we always say, we do. But before we start, we've got to mention what happened last night. So Manchester City played RB Leipzig in the Champions League. Just a normal game you'd expect. But then something happened, didn't it, Ollie? Five goals for Erling Haaland. He what? is an absolute animal. <laughs> I could not believe what I was seeing. Mental, genuinely mental. Like You've never seen anything like that, have you? In all my years watching football, no player has ever scored five goals in a game, in a game that I've been watching. Yeah, he's just a freak. He's a freak. The Champions League knockout stage as well. Ben, obviously your girlfriend's a City fan. Were you pleased to see that? Not really. I mean, <laughs> there's a bit of rivalry there, obviously, and like you had the whole Haaland-Nunes thing, and... I managed to bring up a pre-season friendly against RB Leipzig where Nunes <laughs> scored four and that even got ruined. So, yeah. It's, but, it, I mean, it is incredible to see. Like, as much as I don't like it, you know, we're witnessing something special here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's something else, isn't he? He is just one of a kind. And I did read that he'd had eight shots in that game and he scored five goals. Is he real, Ollie? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's everyone's go-to FPL player at the moment as well, and I've had him in my team the whole season, but yeah, he's just not real. He's not real. Well, seeing as we've got Ben on the show today, what better way to start this show than talk about the biggest club on Merseyside? Right, so Everton did really well on Saturday, <laughs> didn't they? It's a good win against Brentford. What did you think, Ollie? Listen, we're, we're starting to form an identity now, aren't we, under Dyche, and grinding out 1-0 victories here and there, and I did think... That was the first sign that Dyche has really implemented something special at Everton. Um, really impressed with Decore. Obviously, Dwight Maneel scoring very early on. Um, Damari Gray up front on his own. But yeah, what do you think, Alice? I thought it was a really good performance. Well, I think we unsettled them straight away because within the first minute, Dwight McNeil goes and bags one that early. And I think that's what Everton need. We rely on getting the first goal so much. I think that affects our performance. And at that point, you're thinking, though, have we scored too early? Have we not? It turns out that we hadn't. But obviously, seeing us take the lead, we're then thinking, well, at least we've scored. Because, Ben, I'm sure you've seen we don't score many goals. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, really, isn't it? You, you obviously want the goal, but when it comes so early, you just know you're going to be sort of hanging on for the rest of the game. Um, obviously, I only got to watch the highlights, but it looked like you had the fair share of the chances, really. like Brentford didn't really offer as much as you'd expect them to, so I think you did really well. The first half, it was all us, really, wasn't it? I'd say we had the better of the chances. We didn't really let them get into their rhythm, and, yeah, I'd say it was all us first half. Yeah, 100%, and we were kind of a little bit disappointed not to go into the break, maybe two, three goals up, because... Amadou Onana had a chance which he probably should have buried um, obviously the goal went in early doors 35 seconds in from Dwight McNeil but Damari Gray's chance where obviously the goal went in but it got uh, disallowed for handball so we were a bit disappointed not to go in uh, a little bit more like in control we could have been more in, more in control couldn't we but yeah listen that just meant we had to defend a lot in the second half and, and really dig deep, have a, a, a really strong defensive performance, which Dice is obviously known for. It was horrible, wasn't it? That second half, it's just the classic nervy Goodison performance. We're 1-0 up. We felt like we should have been more up, so then you're thinking, are you going to rue the chances that you've missed? And the second half was a completely different game, and funnily enough, Thomas Frank did describe the match as a game of two halves. He did give us a little bit of a shout-out there. But, yeah, the second half was all them. They had the possession... 
they got into our half a lot more. But then I still felt that they didn't create that many clear-cut chances. It was as if they had all of the ball and they had us penned in, but they weren't actually carving through the defence. I mean, it was a bit out of character for Ivan Tony as well, because you do kind of expect him to be on the score sheet, especially on a team like Everton, against a team like Everton, sorry, where you're going to have the fair share of chances and you kind of do think that Ivan Tony will just bag one at some point. And even in Burma, I thought, didn't have a great game. Uh, I think Brentford's best player was Kevin Chardo when he came on. He really made a difference. But yeah, I was a little bit surprised that Brentford didn't actually carve us open as much as we maybe expected them to. Well, we were a bit disappointed with... Oh, no, not, we were absolutely not disappointed. <laughs> the Brentford fans we spoke to in the week were disappointed yeah. about you know their performance stuff because we ended their unbeaten run. That's something to note there. There's a 12-game unbeaten run that we just brought to an end. And obviously the credit there has got to go to Sean Dyche. So, Ben, I want to ask you, we've not spoke to you loads about Sean Dyche yet. I want to know what you think of him, what you think he's done so far in his first seven games at Everton. Do you know what? Like A lot of people would have questioned his appointment, but I think it was spot on. I think he's exactly the sort of man that you needed. You know, you've you've tried different managers, you know, Frank Lampard, young manager, something to prove. It's just not what you need at the moment. You need someone to come in, steady the ship and get results really. Um, that's what he's done, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and even tactically, I'm starting to pick up on little things that he's bringing to Everton that we haven't seen under managers like Marco Silva, Frank Lampard, even Ronald Koeman, you could argue. But there was one thing that I definitely noticed on Saturday was whenever Dwight McNeil got the ball in a wide position, he would never actually look to cross the ball in. He would always try and win the corner, obviously knowing that our biggest threat is from set pieces. So that's just another thing that Dyche has brought to the table. It's it's a, a little small advantage that you can get from a really like simple thing, which I don't think a lot of Everton players, uh, the staff, the coaches, I don't think they would have thought about. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, really? Because obviously with the absence of Dominic Calvert-Loon, you don't actually have that aerial threat there in the box. So you're thinking, right, what can we do to kind of use the tall players we have at the back in the box? And like you say, if we win more corners, you then get the likes of James Tarkovsky to be in the box for the corner. So I quite like that tactic as well. It was interesting to me. And I think it sums up Dyche's way, really. I think he looks at the little percentages. You know, people joke about the little things he's done in training about not wearing snoods and training as you play. But I think that and on the whole just builds a bit of a culture around the club as like, you know, we work hard here and that is the absolute minimum. And it's reflected in his results so far as well, which I actually think have been a bit underappreciated. Yeah. You know, we've won three games in seven under him and under Frank Lampard this season, we won three in 20. The, t- the difference is remarkable. And I don't think people have said that yet. No, and I, I think the measure of Sean Dyche and the style that you're trying to implement at, at Goodison will be massively tested in the next three games. We've got Chelsea, we've got Spurs and we've got Man United as our next three. So that is a real, real big test. And listen, if you ask me now how many points I'd want from those three games, I'd be happy with three, maybe even two, if we can try and grind out a couple of draws here and there. But I do think it'll be a real, real test coming in the next few weeks. Welcome back to a game of two halves. So we're going to cross Stanley Park now. We've talked about Everton. We've got a Liverpool fan here, haven't we? So we've got to talk about Liverpool, especially ahead of the huge game tonight. The second leg of the round of 16, it's Real Madrid versus Liverpool. Ben, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, now we're talking about real football, aren't we? <laughs> um, Let's kick him out now. <laughs> no, to be honest, I've I've sort of got the the hope that anyone would have, and I do think that we will take it to extra time. That's that's my statement that's there. That's a bold statement, that, and yeah. it's live as well. <laughs> so, yeah, get that on the record. But, I mean, the stats don't look good. Like, 
anything I could possibly think of. I was trying to find anything positive, and it, there was just nothing. Um, the fact that Real Madrid haven't lost at home all season, I mean, we can't be the first team to do that when we've only got three away wins in the league. It's It's all very negative. It's going to be one of them games where it's not conventional, though, so I feel like records might be out the window because you know you guys have to go for it this is the thing with second legs because there's already context of the tie you've got a way of playing tonight which is going to be probably a bit gung-ho at times you're going to have to think how much do we risk for the reward because you know you've got to score three goals haven't you yeah i mean as well if you play like you did in those first 20 minutes at anfield if you take that that sort of energy straight in there's no reason why you can't turn them over but at the same time they are so good at home and you kind of, especially with Madrid, you, you kind of separate them between their home performances and their away performances. And for them to do that at Anfield to yeah. you, it, it kind of like shows that, okay, they can do that away from home. They're probably going to be even better with their fans behind them at the Bernabeu. Well, the thing is, like, there's no better example than their own last season in the Champions League. You could think that you've scored the goals to get through, but you just can't rule them out. They will come back from the depth every single time and you can just never be safe when you're there. Let's say you think 14 Champions Leagues to the names, they are the masters of it as well. And I think, you know what you said about separating home and away? I think you can also separate Champions League Real Madrid from mm. any other kind. I think they're a different beast when they're in that competition, as we saw with their win last year, which I'm very glad to mention, Ben. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but <whatever>. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm expecting Real Madrid to get through because surely, you know, if they if they lost a three nil lead, a three goal lead, surely that would be an absolute disaster for them. And I don't think with a club with the reputation of theirs that could happen to them. I mean, I feel like I've made this prediction already. I feel like Liverpool will win on the night, but I don't know if that'll be enough for them to take the take the game to extra time or indeed win in ninety minutes. I think you might win two one, three one, but I just don't think you can stop Madrid from scoring because yeah. Benzema is so good, Vinicius is so good, they've got a good midfield in Modric, Chiumeni. These are the kind of players that even if they are three 0 down, they'll dig them out somehow. I mean, I, I, they kind of thought that a few years ago when you were four 0 down against Bar, three uh, 0 down, sorry, after the first leg against Barcelona, everyone was saying, well, they've got to score one right. But I think the difference in that is that you were playing. At Anfield, second leg. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's yeah. so different at Anfield. Like, if you can take anything back there, whether it's a win, a draw, or even if you are losing, you know that you've got something special there with the European Knights. But this is this is a completely different prospect. And the fact that we're, uh, we're missing Henderson as well, he's been one of our better players of late. I don't know how that's happened, but... <laughs> um, and Pachetic as well has got a knock, so he's unlikely. So it, it seems like it's going to be a Fabinho and either Milner or Cater. Um, obviously, both of them haven't played as much this season, so it's it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to click into gear a bit like you did against Manchester United a couple of weeks ago. I think that's the kind of performance you need to see if you want to get through against these because it needs to be that free-flowing, almost like unstoppable Liverpool side. And that game, I think we should talk about that game, to be honest, because it's, mm. it's an absolute freak of a result. And whether it was a fluke or not is another story because... I felt like that showcased the future of Liverpool, the future of your front three, seeing Gakpo, Nunes, Salah all scoring a brace in that game as well. It was like, right, this is what they've got in the next three years. But Ben, do you think that was a fluke or is that a sign of what's to come? 
I wouldn't call it a fluke. I'd say it just shows what we're capable of. Um, but obviously the very next week shows what we're also capable of in the other direction. Um, I think that game, the scoreline doesn't exactly reflect it. I think United did give up a little bit. There was no better example than Bruno Fernandes just walking on the halfway line as the captain when he got the ball taken past him. So It was embarrassing that, wasn't it? Yeah, it's embarrassing. And for a Manchester United team to capitulate that like that at Anfield it kind of just showed like the Liverpool of old didn't it like the free scoring fl- free flowing team that could just steamroll teams that anyone in their path really it really did feel like you were back and like we've seen it so many times like you had that season 2021 where you lost six games in a row at home and then all of a sudden you find yourselves in the top four at the end of the season like you do always just seem to find a way like it's it's weird do you still believe that you will find a way this season into the top four? I think it, it, it's a lot better of a situation than it was in that season. And we, we did manage to get there through an Allison goal, of all things. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think if we can just put a few games together, that's been our problem this season. We can't put a run together. As soon as we put a run together, it, it, we should be fine because we can afford to then drop a couple of points and not be looking over our shoulders and looking at the teams ahead winning and us just falling further behind. That's the whole thing about consistency with you guys, isn't it? Like, You are a team who I'd look at and go, if anyone can have a 6-7 win, game-winning run, that's Manchester City-Liverpool. But then to see what happened with you guys, you go and win 7-0, then a week later you lose to Bournemouth. You know, hasn't that been a story of your season? You know, you get a glimpse of hope, and then you're thinking, and then it's just all crashed and burned pretty much yeah I mean our next few games are not looking great as well we've got obviously Real Madrid tonight and then it's City away Chelsea away and Arsenal at home fun so (laughs) but the the thing is they are the type of games that we would get results in compared to this season like you you look at the the worst games and it's Forest away it's Bournemouth away you know the results that we get we, we beat Spurs away that was one of our only wins away in the Premier League. So it is those type of games that oddly you look at and you you're thinking, yeah, he's nice, does there? And he's not he's not lumped us in with with Forest and <laughs> and them lot. Obviously, them getting a draw at Goodison earlier in the season. He knows he's not allowed to bring that up. But we said to him, if if you're coming on this show, you can't be bringing that up. <laughs> but yeah, moving on from that, obviously you've got a break this weekend. You've got them horrible games. But looking ahead to the rest of the season now, do you think? Klopp is still the right man and or is his tenure coming to an end yeah no I think as much as you you can doubt him you'll always sort of come back to it um like with the 7-0 and that sort of thing uh he always just shows and he, he gives you the hope back when you need it the most welcome back to a game of two halves and just before the break we did touch on it a little bit but it's the pack now fourth to tenth a hotly contested area of the league at the moment I'm going to put it to you Ben first Obviously, Liverpool are massively in that battle at the moment, yeah. but where do you think Liverpool will finish come the end of the season? I think, going back to sort of what I said, if we can put the run together, then I think probably fourth is the highest we can get, really. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you, you're sort of looking over your shoulder, um, and now at this point, above, with like Spurs and Newcastle, and then below, you've got sort of Chelsea putting together a bit of a run now. Um, and uh, obviously Brighton, they've got a lot of games in hand, so that is worrying. But I think fourth, really. Well, since you touched on Chelsea there, I, I would argue that Chelsea are already out of the race. 
Obviously, they're on 37 points, and you look at the likes of Liverpool and Newcastle, Liverpool on 42 points and Newcastle on 44. They're almost out of sight, you would kind of think. In theory, if you look at Aston Villa, I think Aston Villa are on 34, then surely if you're going to put Chelsea in the race for top four, then you could put Villa in it. So that, to me, tells me that they're gone and they're out of it. I think they're kind of in their own little league there. Like, they're not going to make it into the top four, and there's that, as we said, the pack of teams. Like, there's a couple of impressive teams. There's a couple of teams that have staggered a bit that aren't quite doing as well. One of them that I really want to talk about is Newcastle mm. because they have been the story of the season, haven't they, so far? Started incredibly well, overachieving massively with the players that they have. And I always thought it would come to an end in some way, but I didn't think it had happened this early, and I'm now doubting whether they'll even get in the top six. Ali, do you think they will? I think they'll just fall short of top four. 100% with, along with Brighton. But Newcastle have been that weird team that they've just started stuttering in recent weeks. And maybe it's because of the signing of Anthony Gordon. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, he's not won a professional game since October the 22nd. But, um, yeah, Newcastle's a weird one for me. I don't think they'll get European football. I think they'll maybe just fall short. I'd more be inclined to put Brentford and Brighton ahead of them, which is quite a bold shout about Brentford. But if they can put another run together, like they did for the 12 games prior to Saturday. There's no reason why they can't. But yeah, Newcastle's an interesting one because they've, yeah, I think it was five draws in six games just before the win at the weekend. So yeah, it's, I, I, I don't think they um, will be getting top four and I don't think they'll get top six either. I think the thing is, like as you said, putting a run together, that is the key for every single one of those teams. I think you you could go down to Chelsea because if you can get a run of wins... Like it's really not as many points as you would think that are in it, um, and the teams above you will drop points. We've seen that the whole season. Like it's just been a constant of dropping points. Um, like everyone's sort of switching positions, and there's no not been like a firm sort of oh yeah, this team will get the top four. It's just so like free flowing at the moment. I think that's why we call it the pack, isn't it? As well because mm-hmm. we look at it and go. There's no one who's really cemented the place in the positions there. You can't look at the Europa League spots, the Europa Conference League spot, and think that's them, that's theirs. And I think there's a lot more to come in the rest of the season. Even though there's only around 12 games left, you look at Brentford, what they've got coming up, they've got the possibility of losing their main striker, Ivan Tony. Ollie, do you think that could completely derail them if they lose him? Oh, 100%, because you, you saw it on Saturday how much of a focal point Ivan Tony is for that side, and everything goes through him. Like, every every single thing of their play goes through him. Him and Burmo, you could argue. But, yeah, I think that would massively derail them. Um, it's interesting to see, uh, obviously, how they replace him. Because, obviously, we spoke to a, a Brentford fan in midweek on our podcast. And they were adamant that Brentford will go in for a striker in the summer with the threat of losing Ivan Tony. So... Yeah, I do think that'll massively derail them. If anyone doesn't know, Ivan Tony's currently getting investigated for alleged betting breaches, so there's a chance that he might receive a ban for the rest of the season. So obviously if that happens, even though Brentford, in my opinion, are a solid unit, they're tactically flexible, I think they've got a brilliant manager in Thomas Frank, I still think they'll struggle. I don't know about you, Ben, do you think Brentford have still got enough in them to get Europe without Tony? I don't think so, no. I think they, they need him for not just for the goals, but for like their, their play. That, like the link-up play that he provides, it, it's they just don't have enough to replace him internally. Yeah, I think I agree with that as well. And one team I think are the best to watch out of that pack are Brighton. So under Deserby, the new manager, he took over from Graham Potter, and he's arguably surpassed 
Graham Potter's team, they're, they're arguably a better team than they were with Potter now. And I watch them and think, these guys are so good. And it's not just, oh, yeah, Little Club Brighton are doing so well. These are a serious team. And we have to talk about Matoma as well. What a signing he's been. He was like, kind of went under the radar before the World Cup and then had a decent World Cup with Japan and then just came back to the Premier League and just sprung into life. Getting Brentford, uh, getting Brentford, getting Brighton through in the FA Cup against Liverpool. Yeah. Obviously scored at Goodison. Um, you have to so, bring that one up for Ben. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so both of us have been on the end of a Matoma spanking, you may say. But um, yeah, Brighton looked like the real, real deal going forward in the next few weeks. Well, Ben, you've you've played them a couple of times, haven't you? This season, I don't know what. Felt like we you never stopped about... playing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's perfect person to ask, on, isn't it? What do you think of Brighton? I mean, they're, they're unreal, aren't they? They've just absolutely tore us apart. Like, pretty much every time we've played them, obviously, 3-3 at Anfield. Like, that, that's unreal to, to do that yeah. at Anfield. Um, and then 3-0 away. I mean, that was that was just horrible to watch from my point. But the football they were playing was just incredible. The less spoken about, the better for that one, I imagine. Yeah. But yeah, I've got a, I've got a question to put to both of you, really. That it's it's quite hotly contested at the moment. But do you think this is the closest Premier League we've ever had? Um, because if you look at the relegation battle, there's only five points separating the bottom nine. You look at the the fight for European places, the fight at the at the top of the table between Arsenal and City. Do you think this is the the closest we've ever seen the Premier League? I'm sure there's an argument for it. Off the top of my head, I can't really think of one similar. I'm wondering with the the relegation battle, the bottom nine, will that end up, like, will people pull away as we get later on in the season? That might happen. I think there's a chance that it could end up being a bit of an underwhelming end for the whole season because I expect Liverpool and Chelsea to climb through that pack and Brighton to settle underneath. And then all of the kind of narratives that we had, the Newcastle story, the Brentford story, the Brighton story, I have a feeling some of them might tail off a bit. I think Brighton won't. I think they'll be absolutely fine. And then the title race is, is another one. I have a feeling the rest of the season might be decided a lot earlier than people think. I think that Manchester City will eventually get five or so points clear with about four games to go. So I'm thinking it might be now one of the most open seasons possible, but is it going to end like that? I think it's it's sort of a lot of different groups. It's not necessarily close in terms of everyone. It's You've got, obviously, the relegation battle and then the sort of mid-table to top four sort of thing going on mm. with the pack. Um, and then you've got the title race. And you don't really have many teams that are involved in none of it. You'd sort of say, like, United, not in the title race, but probably already in the top four. And then maybe Villa, you wouldn't really put them in either of, like, the top four race or the relegation battle. Yeah. But other than that, really, you can drag anyone into any of the others. Well, Villa are in their own league, it seems. Yeah. Because they're not going to go down anymore. You know, they probably need three points to stay up now. And then they're not going to chase... Europe in any kind are they I don't know Aston Villa are a weird one because Emery's come in stabilised them a bit I don't know what you think about that Ali. yeah I mean listen I think that was a top appointment from Villa obviously a serial winner in Unai Emre in, in European competitions but yeah he's steadied the ship massively and I think in a few weeks you will start seeing more teams below Villa from like Palace and down obviously I'm not saying Palace will stay because they're in a lot of trouble I'll get into that in a second but you'll see a couple of teams from the, the proverbial relegation battle drop into that 
uh, sorry, sorry, drop in, uh, go up into that sort of Villa league where they're not really fighting for anything and it's just like a mid-table performance. But yeah, I touched on Palace briefly then. I think they're going to be in a bit of trouble in the coming weeks. They look like they've got a real, real problem on the hands. They might be one who actually shift groups because we're talking about what happens in between each group. There's a serious chance they could drop right into the relegation battle. You know, they've not won this year in 2023. So they're really struggling. Ben, Patrick Vieira is a young manager. He's not had too many jobs so far. Is his job under threat? I I think it it could be at this point. Like, they're they're one of those that you don't really pay as much attention to. Um, You sort of see their players, you know, oh, well, they've got really good players. But then they don't really get the results that you'd expect them to. Um, but their sort of attacking threat it doesn't really produce as much as it should. It's more about like having technical players that can sort of amaze you with what they do, but don't really get the output. Yeah, definitely. I think if you look at that pack overall, they could drop into it. Other teams could move away from it. There's so much more to happen in these last 12 games, isn't there, Ali? Yeah, there is, and it's it's really, really interesting between now and the end of the season. Welcome back to a game of two halves, and we're going to deep dive again. We did it a few weeks ago on anti-football, but now we're going to talk about what makes a big club. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. I think the deep dive is something that we want to bring into the show regularly, maybe having that as a regular fix as a part four, where we go in into depth about a specific topic and we debate it so there's going to be a lot to debate here because what makes a big club who knows but we're going to start by actually stating the factors that do make a big club so ollie i'll start with you name some well the first one you could argue is tradition and history who's had historical success so you look at teams like everton uh nottingham forest villa you had to start with everton i didn't did you? of course i did well I had to put everton at the top <laughs> but yeah teams like that that have had historical success aren't really playing as well as they used to be but um, are big clubs in terms of where they've come from and you look at the 80s, 90s, teams like that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Ben, have you got one? I think just touching on Villa and Forest, like, I think European success mm. can can put you up there no matter what. Who's surprised that the Liverpool fans said that? <laughs> six times. <laughs> Not on our show. <laughs> but yeah, um, sort of like European success and then just, I mean, trophies in general, like, whether that is historically or, or now, if you've got the numbers to show for it, why shouldn't you be put in the conversation? Yeah, I think that's true as well. But then trophies now and trophies then is very different too. So I think we have to also debate whether current success turns you into a big club and actually how much current success turns you into a big club. I think the perfect example of that is Manchester City. Yeah. Currently the best team in England over the last five years. They've won four out of the last five Premier League titles. So, Ali, I want to ask you, at what point do they become a huge club? Well, I think there's no denying that they're a big club now. They're probably the only thing that's left in their trophy cabinet to complete is the, the Champions League. And if they get that, there's no denying that they're a big club. But I think they're already like have got that status already from the the time in the Premier League. They've won countless domestic trophies. So yeah, I think Manchester City are a big club and I think that's a really big factor. Current success is a really big factor of what makes a big club. I think be careful what you say here, Ben, because you've got a Manchester City fan girlfriend. But <laughs> what do you think City need to do to become a huge club. I know that they're already they've got a lot of history and stuff, so any City fans I'm not playing down your history, but obviously that's elevated since the takeover. So Ben what do they need to take them to the next level to be like, these are a footballing giant? 
I think I think it's really simple. It's it is winning the Champions League. I mean, I think also time will help. It's people are a lot more likely to look back and say, "Oh, they had all this success before, so they must be a big club now." Um, whereas when it's happening now, it's it's sort of you look back and there's not as much there, and you're saying, "Oh well, how can you be a big club when you're only getting this now?" But yeah, I think it is just the Champions League that would really complete their catalogue and, you know. I mean, I want to also ask you another question, both both of you. Um, how much do you think that the global brand of a club comes into the size of the club? Because probably to your dissatisfaction, Ben, Liverpool, Manchester United, teams like this are massively catered to, to, towards tourism now. You look at ticket systems barely any Liverpool fans from the local area get tickets anymore. So do you think that contributes to what makes a big club? Well, I think definitely, yeah, because you, you get more revenue from being a, a you know a club with a big commercial sort of st- like Pulp, status, yeah. you know. Um, so I think you can't rule that out in terms of being a big club, but it's just not as important as the actual footballing factors for me. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. I think... There's definitely a case for it, though, to be an important part of what makes a big club because, one, if you've got a lot of fans, then you're known around the world. So how could someone say that you're not a huge football club? Manchester United, for example, have struggled in the last 10 years or so since Ferguson left. And then you couldn't suddenly say Manchester United aren't a big club anymore because they've won some of the most trophies in England. They're one of the biggest clubs in the world as well. But the second thing kind of is... Just because they've got a load of fans, does that mean they will always be a big club? Or can someone say, you know what, Manchester United haven't won anything for 30 years now. If that happened, does that just ruin them? Does that mean they'd no longer have that status? And I'm going to go like on a big statement here and say that the bottom line to all these factors is success on the pitch, current success on the pitch. I think if you're doing well on the pitch and you've sustained it for maybe three, four seasons like Manchester City have, like Liverpool have, that makes you a big club, in my opinion. And you can sort of look at that with Manchester United and go from their time from when they appointed David Moyes to now when they're just getting back to finding their feet. They weren't as big as a club as they have been. So you could argue that they're not a big club anymore. They used to be a big club, but unless they're doing well on the pitch in the current moment, maybe for three or four sustained seasons, I don't think you're a big club. Well, talking about that really talking about current success you could argue that Tottenham in the last six seven years have had relative success not in terms of trophies but relative to their like performance as a team in the 10 years prior to that so Tottenham have actually become good at a time that was really good for them as in they turned good at the time when the rest of the teams pulled away all the revenue came in so now Tottenham Hotspur, who were on the same level as Everton seven years ago, are now an absolute cut away from us because commercial value is completely skyrocketed. They've got a brand new stadium worth a billion pounds and simply being good at the right time has almost elevated them, yet they've still not won anything of note. So do they class as a much bigger club than Everton just because they've now got the commercial boost? That's a really interesting point, actually. I didn't think about that, but... Yeah, Spurs are a big club. You you can't deny that. And you even look at their financial power and their sort of marketing brand now as a club. They've just signed a, a deal with F1. They've got a huge stadium, like a, a state of the art stadium. I don't you you've, you two haven't been, but when I went in there, you just look up and it's like it's like a a huge bowl, like it's mental. So yeah, you could argue that even infrastructure of a club could make uh, a team bigger. 
Yeah, because that kind of helps the club with its roots as well. You know, if you uh, pay for a new training ground, you look at Man City's facilities now, if you pay for that, you then kind of bring about the next generation of players, and that's all about sustained success, isn't it? Which we said is a key thing. And obviously, with a team like Everton now, sustained success isn't there, but it was there in the past. So in the 80s, we won league titles. We won one in 85, we won one in 87. We've won nine league titles overall, not to brag. But there's teams that often get compared with Everton, which are Nottingham Forest and Villa. Both of them have won European Cups, and Everton have never won the European Cup. We've won the Cup Winners' Cup. So does their European trophies alone... I'll go to you, Ben, because you were talking about European trophies The before. expert. Yeah. <laughs> does European trophies alone elevate you above the teams who've won more league titles than you you're not gonna like my answer oh oh no in my opinion it does why well for example we look at man city now and we say what do they need to do to go to the next level it's win the champions league it's not win more league titles so if you to say that then surely the champions league or european cup as it was is more important but if you were good for two years for example i think nottingham forest won back-to-back european cups didn't they but then if you look at the rest of their history can they really compare to someone like everton who was the first at so many things won nine league titles five fa cups i don't know whether it's a quality over quantity kind of thing but i'd personally say that everton are a much bigger club than nottingham forest ollie what do you well maybe you can bring in sustainability in the top division as well as a, a key factor for being a big club obviously not bringing in this season because there's a chance we might get relegated and last season there was a chance we might have got relegated but if you look at that before we've had countless countless seasons in the in the top division I do think that a sustained period in the Premier League means you are a bigger club because you look at Nottingham Forest they were in the championship for a number of years you look at Leeds as well even West Ham like a lot of these clubs like to say that they're big clubs because of their fan base you know they've got a, a tight-knit fan base even in the city we're in now we always feel it like walking around Leeds is like the passion like the pride of this city but I think to play devil's advocate here I I think you can't call Leeds uh, West Ham Nottingham Forest big clubs like that just because they've got good atmospheres and big fan bases yeah because fan base is another factor I'd say isn't it you look at Newcastle United they're a one club city they've got a huge stadium a lot of fans but does that make them a big club Ben? I think they don't really have the sort of history that a lot of other clubs have to to say that. But this is another example of where they can build that now with you know the influx of money. They've got a chance to sort of make that one club city and all their fans show for something and, and put it out onto the pitch, which that'll help them a lot um, in their search for success. Yeah, I think it still is going to take a lot of time for them to actually get to that level. But once they get there, Ollie, we were talking about City before and at what point do they become a big club. With Newcastle, if they win a few league titles in the next few years, we know how they got the money. We won't go into how they got the money. Um, Do you think that suddenly makes them a huge club if they win, say, three league titles in the next 15 years? It's a difficult one because... They don't have that sustained success for the history. So I think it will be, they need a period where they're winning maybe two, three league titles in a period of 10 years to, to get to a point where they are considered a big club. But yeah, I think it's I think it's quite difficult to call them a big club maybe just for, for one year of sustained success, like Leicester, for example. Well, if we were to round up this debate as a whole, I want to hear from each of you 
who is the biggest football club in the world and then in England. So, Ben, the guest, let's start with you, mate. Biggest club in Europe and biggest club in England. As much as it pains me to say it today, I'd have to go Real Madrid. Um, and for England, well, you know what I'm going to say, Liverpool. For Ollie. me, it's Madrid. In in the world, 14 Champions League titles, one, one in uh, one last season, maybe we had. Um, <laughs> and uh, in England, it's, it's probably Manchester United. In terms of global brand and stuff like that, Manchester United. I'm going with Real Madrid in the world and Manchester United in England. Welcome back to A Game of Two Halves. We're into the final part now and you know what is about to come. It's upset of the week and we've got an extra person here for it today. Once again, disclaimer, we didn't confer, so there's a chance here that we could be speaking about the same game three times, but that's the nature of the show, isn't it? It is, it is. Why don't we start with the guest? Let's let the guest go first. I mean, I imagine you'll have the same as me, but I've gone with uh, Fulham to knock United out of the cup. Ooh. How come? Well, I actually made a, a prediction early on in the season that Fulham would get Europe. Obviously, at this point, it's looking unlikely, but... I think they, they've done enough to challenge and, and sort of prove me right that they are a capable team. And I think United, I just, they're, they're struggling a little bit. I mean, 7 0. <laughs> confidence would have took a hit from that, wouldn't it? You'd have to bring it up again. I think Fulham could just produce something tonight that would be quite special. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be an interesting one because. Fulham are a good side as well, and they've disappointed recently. And funnily enough, I also chose Fulham to knock out Manchester mm. United in the cup. And my reasoning for that was because they've been so poor lately that I kind of feel they've got to do something at some point now or they're going to go on a slide. And I fear for Marco Silva a bit because obviously he normally struggles in the second half of seasons. So I'm actually going to go Fulham to knock Man United out as well. Interesting. Now, surely we're not going to make it three out of three and we've all got the same one. I've gone for a northern team to upset a southern team, but it's not Fulham to upset. (laughs) It is uh, Everton to pick up either a point or three points at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. That's bold. It is very bold. And I I don't normally do this. I'm very pessimistic usually about Everton. But, you know, when you just have a gut feeling, you'll know Ellis. As an Everton fan, you know, you just feel all week, you're like, you know, I'm up for this. Like, I feel like we're going to do something. Especially when you're going as well. We're going to travel down to Chelsea for our sins. And we're looking forward to it, aren't we? I think it's one of them because Chelsea aren't doing the best this season. Of course, they're not. They're not to the usual standards. But then we've not beat them at Stamford Bridge since November 1994, Ollie. Does that throw into any doubt? (laughs) Maybe I've dug a hole too deep here, maybe. But... You know, we came close a few seasons ago where we drew three all. We've had countless ones where we were ahead until then, like the 93rd minute and John Terry scored a back heel. Like, so, no, do you know what? I'm going to stick with it and I, I do think we'll either get a point or three points at Stamford Bridge. So, Ben, from the impartial perspective now, obviously two Everton fans are going to support that and think, because I do think there's a chance as well. I'm not going to put my neck on the line and say we're going to do it. But Ben, what do you think? Do you think Everton can turn up to Stamford Bridge and turn them over? I mean, it, it's two teams who have, have got a little bit of confidence now after after having poor runs, obviously, relatively to each other. Um, but I think Chelsea have just started to pick up the pace at the wrong moment for you. Like, 
I think that Dortmund game was the real sign. To, to stay in the Champions League would have given them such confidence, and I think they will ride off that for a little while. I think they show signs as well, don't they? They create a lot of chances, and I think it's got to be a very disciplined Sean Dyche-Everton performance. And I personally think we're waiting for that moment. I think we're waiting for a bigger away win. I think it's coming at some point. I don't know if it'll be Saturday. I really hope it is. But based on the way we played against Forest, if you cut out the mistakes, I think we can put in a performance against mm, 100%. All we need to do is just build on that Brentford performance defensively, as long as we stay as solid as we did against them. Maybe just try and get a little bit more going forward. You're going to have to play counter-attacking football at Stamford Bridge. Like That's that's a given because we're not going to dominate possession. We're not going to be able to create chances like we have against teams around us. But no, I'm, I'm positive. And I think if we play Damari Gray up top, having that outlet to obviously utilise his pace, which we know he's got a lot of. So yeah, I think we can do something. So if we're to make a quick-fire prediction on that game, seeing as we've talked about that one a lot, What's your quick-fire prediction? For Everton versus Chelsea? Yeah. I'll go 2-1 Everton. Ben? 2-0 Chelsea. I'm going to go with 1-0 Everton. And then, while Ben's here, the Liverpool fans here, let's predict the game tonight. Real Madrid versus Liverpool. Neck on the line. Ollie? Uh, 3-1 Liverpool. Ben? 4-1 Liverpool. <laughs> and uh, Liverpool to score an extra time. <laughs> I'm going to go with 3-1 Liverpool as well. But that just about wraps up a game of two hours for this week. It's been great having you on, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun, hasn't it? With that little bit of a Merseyside rivalry, you know, we love it, don't we? It's healthy, it's healthy. And talking of Merseyside, we have set up a new podcast. It's Everton-only podcast. It's called The Blue Corner on Spotify. Please listen to that. It's on the same page as a game of two halves. Get on our socials now and everything because we've got so much new branding. Got uh, Game of Two Halves LSR on Instagram and Two Halves LSR on Twitter. Well, that's all from us today at Game of Two Halves. See you later.